Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. We get a preview of an upcoming rally at Queens Park. Hamilton's urban sprawl issue remains a hot topic. Hamilton is also bracing for the peak of the fourth wave of COVID-19. A local parent is frustrated with isolation rules at school. Also an update on the relationship between Hamilton police and the local LGBTQ community. And a man who almost died as a result of COVID-19 will be walking from Simcoe to Hamilton with his wife as part of a fundraiser. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Next Tuesday, the ODSP Action Coalition will present the results of a new survey at a rally in front of Queens Park. The survey results have been documented in a report card for which over a thousand respondents, including many people with disabilities, were asked to grade different aspects of the Ontario Disability Support Program, ODSP. Here to chat about it is Anthony Frazina. He's going to be at this rally. He's a part of the ODSP Action Coalition, founder of Above and Beyond. I can go on and on and on with all the things he's involved in. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Can you give us a preview of this report card? Absolutely. Well, the report card has found that uh, the disability here in our community and the poverty levels of people with disabilities um, are, are are that that you know that we need to increase the the funding for people with disabilities. Uh, poverty begins at birth when you're a person with a disability. Parents, for example. Um, for the most part, depending on the level of disability, are unable to work. Therefore, uh, income supports are, are so much lower. There's needs for supports where there are like assistive devices, medication, often uh, not covered. So we really need to amplify our voices and the supports for people with disabilities so we can live a comfortable life like everybody else in our community. So what are those social assistance rates uh, like right now? Um, quite honestly, Rick, as the inflation rate, as recently documented, has gone up by 4%, OTSP has maintained a stagnant level. So within that kind of comparison, we're looking at the fact that we need to be able to just kind of live in a, a comparable life to those without disabilities, those uh, within a, a community that have a, a different life or the against the disability community. How are people who rely on ODSB getting by these days? Are they are they having to access other funds and other social assistance uh, programs? Having to access other funds and other support programs, it's always been a, a struggle because there's always all this paperwork, all this waiting process. It's been a, a challenge, to say the least, for many people who are on ODSP just to be able to to get by on a monthly basis, whether it be rent, whether it be making ends meet in terms of food, clothing, uh, proper and adequate shelter, and I guess conditions like today, we have this rain today. We need to be able to be viable to support that community in Hamilton the percentage of persons with disabilities is greater than the provincial and national averages. And I'm looking forward to going to Queen's Park, to sharing my story, to sharing uh, my vision of what a future of uh, the alleviation of poverty looks like uh, in Ontario. How has the, and this was a hot topic during the federal election campaign, affordable housing or housing affordability, how has that issue and that crisis really impacted this situation? It's, it's certainly a crisis, Rick, and it maintains uh, to be a crisis. We do need to 
look to the disability community. We need lived experience to be able to create more affordable housing for the disability community, to be able to live a, a quality of life and to be able to ensure that our activities of daily living are not hampered in any way, shape, or form. So you mentioned you wanted to share your story and express your vision. What are What's rolling around in your head in terms of what you want to see? Uh, I'd just like to see more improvement. I'd like to see the rates increased for individuals on ODSP. Uh, at the federal level, they really set a precedence with CERB, indicating that one individual uh, to live a good life uh, is at the $2,000 benchmark. And individuals with uh, ODSP uh, who just typically can't work, typically can't uh, be aren't employable. And we want to also encourage those to be employable. But the benchmark for those who cannot work is $2,000. So we want to try to increase that level to be more comparable. I can picture you and many others, you know, uh, you know, eyeballing CERB and CRB and all these, uh, you know, uh, much needed programs that were instituted at the start of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, your, your group, the ODSP Action Coalition, probably thinking, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, our, our situation is just as dire and has been for many, many years. How come our rates aren't getting propped up? That must have been frustrating. Absolutely. I mean, as you say in the disability community, Rick, nothing about us without us. And the fact that the disability community, through the election process, through everyday lived life, through the pandemic, as we continue to uh, navigate lives through the fourth wave, to be dismissed like this is really disheartening. And it's really unfortunate that the disability community gets uh, pushed away like this. What kind of response are you expecting on Tuesday? We're hoping to get uh, quite a quite a big crowd with a obviously social distancing and mask wearing uh, policies in place. But we're just wanting to share our stories, wanting to share our vision of a future look in Ontario and how we can all work together to alleviate the impact of poverty and with those living on ODSP and create more of a collective prosperity for for those uh, individuals as well. So I have to ask, your cat has been trying to make their voice heard during this interview as well. What's your cat's name? <laughs> My cat is Quinn. Yes, indeed. You know, it's uh, he made a cameo, I guess, eh? <laughs> He's trying to steal the spotlight, that's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Anthony, appreciate the time. Good luck at the rally next week, and uh, we'll certainly keep tabs on uh, how this situation is going to unfold. Wonderful, my man. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one. Anthony Frazina, host, community producer, above and beyond, founder of that uh, great initiative as well, and uh, is a part of the ODSB Action Committee, uh, Coalition, that is, that is going to rally in front of Queen's Park next Tuesday. They want uh, the ODSB program uh, uplifted, uh, a little more cash going into that program and uh, helping those who need that help. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Pleased to be joined by Zoe Green from Stop the Sprawl Hamilton. Good morning, Zoe. Good morning. Uh, So we have some overwhelming survey results to chat about. Were you surprised by any of the numbers that you saw? 
we were really pleased with the results. Uh, all of the, uh, the members of the public that our volunteers had been speaking with and visiting, all of the yard signs that we'd placed out across all of the city, um, we were hearing the same kind of thing. There's a lot of public support for not expanding the urban boundary. So when the survey results came back with such an overwhelming response, over 90% of the, the public responses, um, they don't want to see an expansion in the urban boundary. So what do you say to those people who do want to expand the urban boundary? Because there are some people out there that think growing out is better than growing up. Yeah, and there's a few different pieces to this, but um, those of us with Stop Sprawl, I mean, we're all volunteers. We're all members of the public, and we all live here in Hamilton. And um, Hamilton actually is has the, nas- the highest national average of single-family homes across all of Canada across Ontario, Hamilton has the highest average of single-family homes already. So uh, yes, there's no question that housing is needed, but it needs to be built within the urban, existing urban boundary. That's where the infrastructure already exists. It'll help keep taxes lower for current taxpayers. It'll help support local businesses by um, having gentle density within the existing urban boundary. Um, Not expanding the boundary does not mean, you know, high-rises everywhere. There's lots of solutions for gentle density that are missing right now, and people want options. People want housing options as well. So what are those solutions, and what are those housing options? Yeah, so um, building within the current current urban boundary, uh, there's lots of opportunity for row houses and townhouses. I mean, if you look at Montreal, for example, it's very, very common to see a three-story building. It can house several families. They have backyards. They have front yards. They're part of the community. They feel part of that community fabric. And, you know, after we've all sort of been through this pandemic, that's what a lot of people are looking for, that human connection. Um, the other opportunity, of course, is by um, having gentle density within the current urban boundary. Um, it helps bring back, hopefully, the local businesses because having enough people living in those areas of the city means that local businesses can return and, and hopefully thrive again. So those are just a few of the examples of why it's important to, to not expand the boundary. We're chatting with Zoe Green from Stop the Sprawl Hamilton here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. My name is Rick Samprin, and the survey results show that of the more than 16,000 respondents, more than 90% of them opposed an expansion of the urban boundary into farmland. Uh, there is a projection, uh, projection that is, that 236,000 people are going to come to our city by 2051. Um, do we have enough room for all those people? Yeah, so... Um it's interesting that you bring up the, the uh, population projections because those are actually being challenged right now or they're being reviewed by the Auditor General of Ontario. So there's already a question in terms of how big those population projections might be. But yes, there's no question that Hamilton is going to grow and we do need housing. Um, again, we just would um, argue that there's space and there's opportunity within the current urban boundary to support that through gentle density, townhomes, um, you know, proper infilling. And, you know, these sprawling subdivisions, I mean, from the 80s, 70s, that's last century. You know, that's, that's not what we need for our city to move forward. So that's why there's so much public support for holding firm on the urban boundary. The survey results are going to be presented to city councillors during a meeting on October 25th. What do you expect at that meeting? What do you expect the go-forward plan to look like? Yeah, so that's the next uh, big step in this in this process that's been going on for many, many months, a long time. Um, staff have information that they'll be presenting to the committee members. Um, we're anticipating um, 
large turnout of the public again as, as they've shown throughout this process as the public has become engaged. The Stop Sprawl Hammond uh, movement, our, our website ssho.ca, there's information there. Um, we continue to bring in and, and draw the attention as people are becoming more aware of the, inf of the issue. Um, at that meeting, we're anticipating, you know, council's going to hear, they're going to continue to hear from the public who does not want the urban boundary to, to expand. It's really important that we're not continuing to pave over this irreplaceable farmland. Um, those are the lands, you know, that would be proposed for, for future development. There's so many opportunities that already exist within our urban boundary. Um, so we're uh, you know, welcoming um, the members that continue to join us and support us. So this could lead to perhaps more affordable housing units, given that we're building within the infrastructure we already have. That's exactly right, using the existing infrastructure we have. I mean, the city has a, a $3.8 billion, billion dollar deficit, and it continues to grow. That's the maintenance deficit on our existing infrastructure. So if there's a thought of adding more infrastructure, more roads, more pipes, then that means tax dollars are going to be going up, commuter times are going to be increased, there's going to be more roads on traffic. Whereas if you contain, if you keep the development and the housing opportunities are provided within the current urban boundary, then you're able to keep a lid on those taxes and also um, provide the housing that, that is needed within uh, across the city. Zoe, great discussion. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, I guess we'll chat with you sometime after October 25th when the city analyzes the results. Yeah, we appreciate your interest. Um, and as I mentioned, if people would like to know more, they can go to our website, Stop Sprawl Hammond. It's ssho.ca. Thanks very much. And again, uh, that meeting at City Council is going to be October 25th. And, uh, you know, my thought on this is uh, no one wants to eat up farmland, especially in this area. There's a lot of great farmers out there, a lot of great produce that is, uh, you know, uh, produced from those areas. But you know, building up has its pros and cons as well. And I know that Zoe talked about row houses, which, you know, could be a solution. Uh, whatever the city decides to do in, in, in determining where and how to construct these new homes, uh, number one, they have to be more affordable than they are. I know, you know, the supply and demand game dictates price in many cases. But uh, let's not forget, you know, and this is a message to city planners, let's not forget those who just can't get into the housing market. We can't ignore that segment of the population. And with immigration levels spiking in the years to come, with our city's population increasing uh, by, you know, some estimates say 200, 230,000 in the next uh, 20 to 30 years, that's a lot of people. So our infrastructure needs have to become that much more concise. And that's got to be beefed up as well. Our transportation system has to be spot on. There are so many layers to this discussion. Uh, it's not just, hey, let's build up. Uh, we have to build up smartly, and hopefully uh, the city can do just that. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. When it comes to Hamilton, we know we have some work to do as we are now into the fourth wave. Let's get the latest from Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson. Dr. Richardson, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. Thank uh, you. We're in the fourth wave right now. Is it proceeding as expected? Yes, we are in the fourth wave. And I think the thing we've learned with the Delta virus and the uh, coronavirus in, you know, overall is that you just have to be humble, as Dr. Kieran War says about it. And you can't uh, always predict what's going to happen next, but you have to be aware. So we've had very high case rates in the past couple of weeks. They still remain high. We're still sitting at about 42 cases 
uh, per 100,000 people per week. So that's still high. Um, but we're glad that it's sort of been steady the last week or so. Um, you know, predictions are that it's going to increase again as we get inside and have more mixing. We've got people back in schools. Um, and until our vaccination rates continue to climb even higher, we are concerned that it's going to continue to rise. Yeah, the latest modeling expecting that the peak of the fourth wave will hit us by mid-October. Is that correct? That's right. So the, the modeling that we're doing, it's a tough time to be modeling because we do have the good news of the vaccination rates slowly creeping up. We'd like to those to go up even faster and for more people to be protected. Um, but at the same time, we continue to deal with the Delta virus and it's very transmissible um, does cause severe disease in those that are not vaccinated, um, and of course even deaths. And so it's a, a challenging time with those two forces kind of playing out over the next few weeks. But the modeling with where we're at right now and what we've seen with the rate of, of increase in vaccination is a peak in mid-October at about 120 cases per day. Um, could be a little lower, could be a, a little higher. And so we really want those vaccination rates to get up. That will help to reduce that peak but also to remember that continuing those measures like masking, physical distancing, those sorts of measures continue to be really important in order to protect all of us. That same modeling shows that we're expected to reach about 80% of the eligible population being fully vaccinated by mid-October. Is that a disappointing figure? We're we're tied for the lowest in the province. That 80% by mid-October really screams a, a, a low amount. Uh, yeah, I hear you, Rick, and, and it's not the number we'd like to be at. I can tell you that, you know, amongst uh, us at uh, Public Health, and you've heard the mayor speak about this and how important it is for everybody to get vaccinated. We know those that are not vaccinated have about an 8 to 10 times higher risk of getting the virus overall. They have about a 20 times higher risk of getting severe disease, and they have a, a 40 times uh, higher risk of ending up in the ICU. So we're very concerned about those that aren't vaccinated. Our highest uh rates of unvaccinated are in that 18 to 39 year old age group Um, and so very concerning for those but of course we're also concerned about those who can't be vaccinated and so we know some people have medical conditions and they can't get the vaccine and of course we don't yet have a vaccine for those under 12 so we're concerned too for them and so we when we're talking about vaccination it's important to protect ourselves It's an important measure to protect our loved ones, and it's an important measure to protect the community as a whole. How do we reach that 18 to 29 crowd? That 18 to 39 crowd, you know, I think it really is a combination of things. I've I've certainly got 18 to 39-year-olds and those uh, around me, and it's a combination of of they want to know. They want to know the information. They want to understand what has gone on, and so having all the information that they can is very, very important. You know, having peers talk to peers is an important thing. We all, um, you know, want to talk to the people around us that are like us. And so within as well, our our groups that are racialized or otherwise having um, leaders from those areas speak to the issues. We're very happy to see our faith leaders out um, speaking to the vaccine and the importance of the vaccine. And the other piece, of course, is the vaccine certification system. And, you know, we know this age group is social. They want to be out in the bars and nightclubs. Um, you know, once they've reached that age of 19. And so the vaccine verification system is an important step as well to help that group move forward with their vaccinations and make sure that they're well protected. So do you anticipate the new certification system will, you know, force a boost in vaccination rates? Uh, we do anticipate that that's going to happen. And certainly what we've seen is we're we're sitting at about 50% of the vaccines that we're giving at this stage are first doses. So these are people who have 
you know, been waiting either because of information or, you know, a time in their lives that it makes sense or now due to the vaccine certification system, they are choosing to get vaccinated and that is fantastic. We know they need two doses to be well protected against the uh, the Delta virus. And so, you know, encouraging them to get that second dose as soon as possible once they're eligible for that second dose so they too can get full immunity and be well protected. Dr. Richardson, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Rick. You too. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton, should also mention that the city is on track to see 300 more hospitalizations from COVID-19 between now and the end of the year, with more than half of those among residents aged 20 to 59. So it's not just those 19 to 29 or 39 age group, it's even those who are older who are going to be, you know, sadly forced into hospital because of this uh, deadly virus. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. We got an email from a parent named Colin the other day, and I thought this was important to share with our listeners here on Good Morning Hamilton. Colin writes, I'm an irate parent of students in grades 3, 1, and junior kindergarten. My children go to school in Hamilton. My children are now at home again because someone on their bus tested positive for COVID-19. They now have to isolate for 10 days from last exposure, regardless of testing status. He writes, these rules are too strict and they must be changed immediately before my kid's education is affected even more than it already has been. Let's bring Colin onto the air here on Good Morning Hamilton. Colin, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. This is an important topic to have. You're, You're clearly a frustrated parent. Yeah, you know, I am. And I think that the frustration stems from the fact that these kids were off for most of last year, at least eight months. And um, and we're thinking that this uh, remote learning is supposed to act as a surrogate for their education. And it's really not working for them. So my kids essentially have not been in school for over a year uh, during this pandemic. And we were all excited for the fall with vaccination rates going up and people uh, getting comfortable with physical distancing and masking at schools. Uh, But here we are, a week and a half into a new school year, and my kids are already home for a week. And I want to make the point that my kids are healthy. So we're sending healthy kids home from school, and it's just really frustrating. And one of the things you're calling for, at least questioning, is the isolation rules. And your email says, you know, the rules should be to self-isolate only if you test positive, not if you come into contact with someone who tested positive. And, you know, in my opinion, the the isolation rules, there's kind of a loophole here because we're penalizing, as you said, healthy kids just because they may have been close to someone who has tested positive. Well, exactly. And I think that we have to think about what is a what is a reasonable expectation moving forward? You know, at this rate, at least one kid is going to test positive every week or two at schools, which means everybody around them is now going to have to isolate. At which point, I wonder, like, what is even the point of having schools open at all if this is the rule that we have in place? You know, it kind of reminds me last fall when we had this list of symptoms for uh, for kids going to school, and one of them was a runny nose. And we had to cancel that rule because we all know that every kid has a runny nose in the fall. So I think this is just another example of the rules just being a little too strict for what we're trying to achieve. Have you contacted the school that your kids go to, the school board or even the education ministry? Yep, I've emailed both um, the Minister Lecce and Hamilton District uh, School Board. 
um, as well as you guys, um, and you're the only one that's gotten back to me so far. Wow. So what kind of reaction do you expect from the school board or, or even the education ministry? Well, I'm hoping that, you know, talking to you this morning just brings more light to this problem, and I think it's a really simple solution. Um, and so I, I would invite anybody to reach out to me or other frustrated parents to try and work through this. So your kids are in grades 3, 1, and JK. How are they handling this? Um, well, you know, I think they roll with the punches, but um, they are expecting adults to look out for them and to know what's best for them. And I think we all realize that we have to prioritize our children's education at some point. And, um, you know, so while they are handling uh, the day-to-day okay, I think it's parents like me who are really concerned about them falling behind in education milestones uh, affecting their long-term future. We're chatting with uh, local parents, Colin, whose uh, three children are uh, at home in isolation because someone on their bus tested positive for COVID-19. Now, his kids are okay, but now obviously missing some vital in-school instruction. Uh, Are you preparing to have your kids learning remotely at some point this year, if not maybe for the rest of this year? Um, Well, we are. We're prepared to do this as much as uh, any other parent is. We've been in contact with uh, our uh, our children's teachers, and they're sending us, you know, pictures of their lesson plans for the day in the classroom, and we're trying to work through those lesson plans uh, the next day or in the evening. Uh, but, you know, we both work full-time, um, and so uh, we've had to take a leave of absence and then apply for this child care benefit plan. But I think it's, it's um, unreasonable to expect parents to work full-time be full-time teachers, and then be full-time caregivers. I think at some point, parents are just, frankly, going to revolt because it's a lot on us, and we really just need to keep our kids in school as much as possible. Yeah, and it does certainly put a strain at home because now you're having to adjust your schedule because your kids are now at home. That's right. How did your two oldest kids make out with remote learning last year? Did they like it? Did you like it? Uh, Well, I, I would say that they... Uh, they liked, you know, they, they didn't really learn much. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. So I would say we didn't like it very much, but you know, the kids, like I said, they're so young that they can roll with, with the punches, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's parents who know like what the education milestones need to be that are really frustrated that, that the kids are, are missing out on that. Colin, appreciate you sharing your story, and uh, hopefully we can get some movement on this because it sounds like uh, this is a needless, uh, you know, home sentence, if you will, for your children, and, and there's probably many more in this uh, same boat. Thanks for joining us today. Wonderful. Thanks, Rick. That's Colin, and uh, again, his uh, three kids at home because someone on their bus tested positive for COVID-19. They're okay. They're showing no signs of the virus, but they have to isolate for 10 days from last exposure regardless of their testing status which seems kind of weird wouldn't 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 you want them to get tested and a negative test would prove that they're okay to return to school sounds like a loophole that needs to be closed and again we thank colin for sharing that story how about some news and opinion to go with your coffee this is good morning hamilton with rick zamperin on 900 chml a new survey is being worked on 
to analyze the strained relationship between the local LGBTQ community and Hamilton police. Here to shine a light on it is Sergeant Rebecca Moran, the first two-spirit and LGBTQIA plus liaison officer at Hamilton police. Good morning, Sergeant Moran. How are you? Morning. I'm I'm well. How are you? Not too bad. Um, so this new survey is in the works. I understand it's going to be uh, completed or at least run until September 30th, and then all the data is going to be crunched. What can you tell us about this process? Well, we partnered with uh, McMaster University, and we've launched the survey. And like you said, it's uh, it's running until September 30th, and we encourage members of the communities to to access the survey. You know, we want people to feel safe to respond honestly to the questions in the survey. And we're looking to, you know, basically inquire about the qualities of a facilitator so that we can uh, begin the process of of communicating and having conversations uh, with the uh, 2S and LGBTQIA plus communities. So would this facilitator be a go-between between between, uh, yourself or police and the LGBTQ community as well? Uh, yeah, they would facilitate the conversations and the meetings with uh, with community as we progress down this road. Uh, the survey aims to uh, analyze as well the relationship, which has been called uh, historically strained and fraught with distrust. There's going to be a lot of heavy lifting going forward, isn't there? There certainly is. Uh, you know, the police, we've listened to the community and we know, we know that trust has been lost and we are eager to start those conversations to begin that healing process. We are very committed to this. Yeah, and, and the you know trust issues, that's extremely hard to overcome. That, this process is going to take some time. Absolutely, and, and we, we realize that. We know that this is not going to be something quick and overnight, and this is going to take dedication and commitment, and we are thoroughly committed to this. So as the first two-spirit and LGBTQIA plus liaison officer with Hamilton Police, what have you heard? Well, I've heard that, you know, the community is hesitant, and I understand that. Uh, We have new leadership here. We have Chief Frank Bergen. He is very committed to community engagement. He's behind this 100%. We felt that having McMaster University facilitate the survey, uh, it was, you know, appropriate. We, it's confidential and anonymous, and Hamilton Police will only be provided with a final report that will summarize the thematics of, of, you know, the, basically what the community is telling us. So what what do you anticipate the community to tell you, and what have you heard with discussions with those in the LGBTQ community? I, I don't want to speculate what people are going to say. You know, I think that it, to do that is, is not appropriate, but mm-hmm. I'm hoping that I, I want the community to log in, and I want them to be completely honest, um, you know, about the facilitator, about what the, the issues, and, and um, basically what what it's going to take for Hamilton Police, what the healing process looks like for the community. Obviously, uh, actions speak louder than words in this regard. What are some of the things that Hamilton Police plan to do or hope to do in the future here? Well, we have the Bergman report. Uh, that was the Pride report uh, from the Pride 2019, Scott Bergman. Uh, that came with 38 recommendations. Uh, many of those have been completed. In fact, uh, people who are interested in that can log on to our website. There's a complete uh, infographic that explains everything. Uh, and within that infographic, you'll see that my role has been made a full-time position. Uh, we have a dedicated uh, training plan. We have uh, amended our operational plan for large events. There's a lot of things that are the police are undertaking that I think the community will see that progress is being made. How important was it that your role was made full-time? I mean, uh, optically, it looks great, but there's a, there's a purpose to it. Absolutely. And I think when, uh, you know, I began the role, 
I was so excited to start it, and um, I'm thrilled that it's full-time now. I think what the community was saying was that um, they weren't, they were happy that the role had been created, but maybe not so thrilled that it was, uh, you know, I, I heard people use the term off the side of my desk. So it's on the full portion of my desk now, and uh, I'm committed to that, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be doing it. And I think that that speaks to the leadership of my, you know, my superintendent, Trina McSween, and uh, Chief Frank Bergen. They're very supportive of this, and anything that I bring to them, I have the full support of my, of, uh, my command staff, which is really great. What's your message to those uh, in, in the LGBTQ community as we move forward in this uh, rehabilitation process, if you will? Well, I would really love for them to participate in this survey because I want their voices to be heard. I think it's important for people to know that I come with lived experience and, uh, you know, there's someone uh, in the police service who has that lived experience and I think that that goes a long way, but I I really think that people um, are entitled to their say and I think this survey is one of those uh, avenues that they can take and they can let us know uh, what what kind of facilitator, what it's going to take, uh, what that healing process looks like. So I think those are important themes and and important things that we want to move forward on. And that lived experience that you have certainly helps with the trust issue, right? Oh, absolutely. And I've I've been told that by countless community members when I I speak with them, uh, that it's just so refreshing and it's so nice because there's, you know, there's things that some people just may not understand. And I think that that's, you know, that's a comfort to to people, and we always want to encourage victims um, to report things to police. And if that's one thing that's making people feel more comfortable, then that's great. How soon after the survey is done can we expect results and a and an action plan, if you will? Well, I think the survey ends September 30th, and McMaster University is committed to uh, compile that information and. Hopefully, we'll have that report back by the end of October, and then we will begin looking for a facilitator with those, you know, using those thematics and those qualities that have been identified by the communities. And should that facilitator have lived experience as well? And I, I think that's up to the community to yeah. decide, and, and hopefully that's what's going to come out of the survey. If that's, that's the want of the community, then that's certainly something that we're going to be looking at, and hopefully, you know, that's um, spoken to in the survey answers and results. Sergeant Moran, really appreciate the time today. We'll be following this story and certainly uh, anticipating the results of the survey as well. Thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. And if I could just add, if people want to access the survey, I really encourage them to do so. They can access it from our website under our news and community. It's at the bottom. And we'll also have a link in our social media today. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Excellent. Likewise, have a good one. That's Sergeant Rebecca Moran, the first two-spirit and LGBTQIA plus liaison officer at Hamilton Police. I know it's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, A lot of digits there. But uh, this is an important process. Uh, The survey runs until September 30th. Uh, All the data will be crunched. It'll be compiled in an analysis that will be shared with not only Hamilton Police, obviously, but with the community. And hopefully these two sides can come to a better place. It's not going to be overnight. It's probably not going to be within a year. This is going to take some time, but it is worth the time and efforts to put into this process. And this is an important part of that process. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. A group of fundraisers will run from Simcoe to Hamilton this Friday. It's part of the Strides for Healthcare Heroes virtual fundraiser for Hamilton Health Sciences. Sarah and Mike Van Netten will be among those who are going to be participating. And there's an interesting twist to their story. Mike was a COVID-19 patient and nearly died as a result of the virus 
earlier this year. Sarah and Mike join us on Good Morning Hamilton, and we say good morning to them both. How are you? Hi, we're good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Mike, we'll we'll start with you. From near death earlier this year to running in a fundraiser, what a story. Tell us about it. Okay, well, first off, I'm going to say I'm not going to be running. (laughs) Uh, My my wife and a bunch of her friends from her gym are going to be doing the running. I'll be there for moral support. Uh, but that being said, I wasn't much of a runner before I had COVID. So, uh, uh, I probably wouldn't be running if, if I did, if I hadn't been in that situation. But, uh, first off, I'd like to thank those ladies for doing this. And I think it's a great fundraiser for the hospital and it's, it's doing extremely well. And, uh, I'm so looking forward to watching these girls do this tomorrow because, uh, or Friday, sorry. And, uh, cause it's going to be a great experience and hopefully the weather, Weather is good for these girls. Tell us about your ordeal, Mike. How you got the virus? Do you know where you got it from? Your hospital experience? Uh, bring this. Yeah. Uh, bring this to light for yeah, us. Yeah, really, I don't know how I got it. It was uh, April eighth. I just hadn't been feeling good for a couple of days, and uh, said to my wife, "I think I better just you better take me to the hospital." I just you know, we were all worried about it. You never know. You have COVID or whatever, and I, you know, it got to the point. Well, man, this might be COVID. And uh, so I went to the hospital and our local hospital here at Norfolk General and Simcoe, they were unbelievable. Uh, I was in and out of there in an hour. They had an x-ray on me. Uh, they had me in the ambulance going to uh, Burlington. They said, you know what, this is, uh, this is too big for us. You're going to a, a better spot for you. So they sent me to uh, Burlington. And then Burlington uh, took me for a couple of days. And then I got airlifted to uh, Hamil- Hamilton General there. And... Uh, and ever since I was at uh, the general, they, you know, I don't recall any of the first 40, 45 days there. I was uh, in a coma and uh, put on the ECMO, and that ECMO machine uh, saved my life. Like, and those doctors, nurses, the cleaners, everybody in that hospital, I can't say one bad thing about. Like, I was in there for 83, 84 days, and I can honestly say there wasn't one person in that place that wasn't kind to me. They were all unbelievable. Wow. Sarah, what was this like for you? You must have been losing your mind. Well, yeah, that's, that's one way to put it. It was terrifying. It was the most uh, terrifying experience of my life. Um, you know, you just, you send, at first she thought he'd be gone for two days, and you think to yourself, oh, two days, how are we, you know, and then two days later he's put on a ventilator and in a coma, and that's, you know, you have a quick conversation on the phone before that happens and you try to sum up your lives in a couple minutes and that that was the last time that I spoke to him for about 40 days and from the ventilator they airlifted him to go on the ECMO machine which you know we have uh, doctors reports afterwards that judging from his lungs uh, a ventilator never would have saved Mike's life he would have he would have died if he hadn't have gotten the chance to be on the ECMO machine and I mean there's just not there's not enough that we can do to say good things about the Hamilton General, the Rehab Center, Hamilton Health Sciences in general. Um, and just, you know, um, when we got the opportunity to do this fundraiser, it's actually my cousin Chris, who's a nurse on the ICU floor, that suggested it to me. And uh, any, any, it's not even about the ECMO machine, but it's, it's about that these healthcare workers get the acknowledgement that they deserve. They've been fighting this fight for almost two years now and uh they're tired and they just need to 
have a boost and people need to know that they are appreciated and and that and that there's a community of love around them and yeah that it, it's my passion right now that this hospital and these workers and and this cause it's it's so close to our hearts it it gave us our our you know my husband my kid's father our a son a best friend he he's back and he wouldn't have been otherwise so. Wow, that's that's a tremendous story, Mike. How do you feel now? I, I feel good. I, I get tired easy. Um, you know, life's getting closer to back to normal. Like you know, they they let me go in my barn there once in a while, so that's you know, and uh, I appreciate that. And uh, no, it's getting better every day. Uh, and but it's new. Like uh, my physio person has been great with me in Hamilton, and he says, you know what? It's gonna. You know, I got a lot of stuff in my body. He says, don't be expecting uh, miracles. He goes, you are already a miracle. He goes, uh, just take it, you know, don't look at day by day, look at week by week or month by month and try, let's try to get better. And, uh, and I am, and it's, uh, like, yeah, like it's I, honestly, I just lose my breath early quicker and I get tired a little bit quicker, but you know what, with, with some time and, uh, some physio and some getting back to normal, normal, uh, I think it'll only help. And, uh, yeah, I have everybody in that hospital to uh, thank for that. Sarah, really quick, we're running out of time. How can people yeah. donate? Um, there, if you go on the Strides for the General, there they have a whole page, and then at the bottom, there's all the teams. You can click on any any team. Our two teams are uh, Team Chicken and Chicken Hit Chicks. Um, either of those, click on, make a donation. It doesn't matter how little or how great. It's all, and it's being matched. Um, all their donations are being matched three to one. So it's a, just a great opportunity. And I just thank everybody who supported any of the teams. Kudos to everybody. And just looking forward to a great week for, for the strides and, and that they get accomplished. What they, they already met their goal. Now we're surpassing it. And that's just unbelievable. Wow. Great story. Great cause. Uh, thanks for the time, Sarah and Mike. Good luck with the run on uh, Friday, Sarah. And uh, best of luck going yeah, forward, Mike. Thanks, Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Zamperin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.